Hey, Reality Family, thanks so much for joining us again for our teaching for this week. Been away for the last couple weeks on vacation and had a great time and feel rested and excited to come back and talk about prayer a little bit this morning. Our scripture is from Psalm 10, so please read along with me. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings, the one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved. From generation to generation, I will be without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. This is God's word. Well, as I said, we're in a series uh, this, this summer talking about the vision and practice of prayer. When we talk about prayer, I think that many of us who follow Jesus want to have a really great prayer life and want to be able to commune with God in a very close way. But it's not the reality of what we experience in our lives. We have a lack of prayer. And so it can cause some guilt and shame. And in looking at my own life and talking to other people, I think there's at least three reasons why uh, we don't have this prayer life that we long for. The first is because we just don't give it time simply. Uh, if you uh, go back to our Rule of Life series, we talked a lot about this, that we have to, we only have a finite amount of time, and so we need to subtract things from our lives in order to put practices in that are going to help us to grow in relationship with God and to become like Him. So if that's your issue with prayer, I would encourage you to go to that series and listen specifically to the sermon on prayer. So time is the first issue. The second is the mechanics of prayer, that we, we may not know how to pray, um, this is what the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. So if you're a new follower of Jesus, or this is something that was not modeled in your family of origin, I hope this series gives you some different ideas about how to pray. And of course, there are many people in our community who would love to talk with you, including myself, if you have questions along that lines. But for many of us, I think we, we have had practices of prayer that have worked in the past, but they're not working now. And I think there's at least two reasons for this. The first may be uh, that we hit a plateau in our relationship with God. So we have these practices that were really helping us to grow as people uh, in the image of Jesus and also in relationship with him. But at a certain time, we've kind of tailed off and, and now uh, we've plateaued and we feel like we're not making any ground. I think when this happens, it's an invitation of God to do two things. 
The first is to come to God and ask him, is there any sin in my life? Are there any issues in my life that are keeping me from following you or, or from communi communing with you and growing? Is there a spiritual reason why I've plateaued? And so it's an invitation for us to go to God and to, to listen to him. But the second part of it might be that our, uh, we just need to change up our spiritual rhythms. I was listening to a pastor and he said this, when my rhythms have become a rut, I know I'm in trouble. And that can be true for, for many of us. Our rhythms, which really helped us to grow at a certain period of time, have now become a rut. And so we need to change up our rhythms. And again, this, I, I hope this series gives you some different ideas about how to do that. Uh, for others of us, we've had great um, spiritual rhythms around prayer in the past, but our lives have changed and those spiritual rhythms don't work for us now. Maybe you were single or you were uh, married with no kids and then, like many people in our community, you've had a kid or your second kid. And so your time is really squeezed and you're not able to engage in prayer the same way that you did before. So there's nothing wrong with your rhythms, it's just that life has changed and you have to reimagine how prayer can happen in that space. Or maybe you had kids at home um, and had a job and now you are retired or your kids have moved out. So you have actually a lot more space in your, in your schedule and in your time. So your, your life has changed. And of course, for all of us, you know, taking vacation, our lives change on vacation. If you're a teacher, you're, you're thinking about going back to school. All of us are emerging out of COVID where there's gonna be a lot more uh, different things vying for our time. So as our world changes, we need to be continually reevaluating what our practices are. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week and, and I'll give you um, one different way to practice prayer a different uh, kind of way to do prayer, a how-to. So there's both the uh, time and the mechanics of prayer. But the third thing that I want to really spend our time today on today is that we, have a lot, we don't pray and don't have a robust prayer life because we lack vision for prayer. Uh, I firmly believe that the, things, uh, that, that we, the things that we truly love are not best um, described by what we think or what we say we want but rather by what we do. That shows us what we love, how we spend our time and our talent and our energy, where our minds go when they're at ease. That's really where our treasure is in life. And so for many of us, we have, don't have a great vision of what prayer can help us to become, to overcome the hurdles that are in prayer. Uh, J.I. Packer, a great Anglican uh, teacher and pastor, said uh, he, he wrote a book on prayer and it's called From Duty to Delight. From Duty to Delight. And I think that's very true, that we have this desire to have delight in God, to have a great relationship with him. And the process of prayer or the path of prayer is moving through duty to get to delight. And of course, um, we'll never get to delight if we don't start with duty, but we'll never start with duty if we don't have a vision for what prayer can look like. So that's what I want to talk about today is to give us a bit of a vision for prayer, what we're doing in prayer and what the hope of prayer is by looking at three things. First, we're going to look at the presence of prayer. The second is our perception of prayer. And then finally, prayer as partnership. A lot of P's in there. So the presence of prayer, perception of prayer, and then prayer is partnership. The first one is presence uh, in prayer. Sometimes I think of prayer as like picking up a phone to talk with God. But I can feel sometimes when I pray, like it, I'm not sure if there's anybody on the other line, if anyone even has the other end of the phone. I don't know if you ever feel like that. I sometimes feel like this with my kids as well. We have young kids and uh, I'll say to them, hey, it's time for us to clean up. So I'm trying to gather them uh, and I'll say, okay, we take all of our stuff from the living room and take it back up to your rooms. 
and also I'd like you to clean up your laundry. And by this time, I think oftentimes they've already stopped listening to me, so I'll sometimes say, you know, and also I have $100 for you and I'm pregnant and our family's moving to Afghanistan just to see if my kids are actually listening. And usually they actually, they are. They're just not good whole body listeners. They inherit that from me. But the prayer can feel the same way, I think. We come to God in prayer and we kind of wonder, is there even anyone listening? Would it even matter if I did anything in prayer? Um, and I think it's very, this is especially acute in our day and age where it's hard to believe in God in our culture. Our culture moves in a direction that says God is not here and he's not involved in our world. But I think we can, uh, we can think that this is just a modern problem, but Psalm 10 actually shows us that it's not just a problem that we deal with today. It's actually an ancient issue, wondering if God is on the other end of the line. Listen to what the psalmist says. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? He's asking, where are you? Are you is anyone on the other end of this line or not? And then he goes on this long tirade about how wicked people are, um, are succeeding in life. The wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are secure. He says to himself, I'll never be moved. From generation to generation, I'll be without calamity. God has forgotten. He's saying to God, there's so much evidence to the contrary that you exist in my life and in my world. I don't even know if you're listening and it doesn't look like you're involved and engaged in this world at all. Philosophers and theologians call this the problem of divine hiddenness, that God is not only unable for us, we're unable to touch him or to see him, but sometimes we even lack the ability to see that he is involved and present in our world. So what do we do about this? Like I said, it's not just a problem for us, although I think it is, it's also been a problem for all time. And two things I want us to notice from uh, this Psalm. The first is that God, the psalmist is talking about the lack of God's presence or his supposed lack, his hiddenness, and he's talking about that to God. He's not just saying, oh, I guess I might as well not even pray, but he's praying about this problem towards God. And he's not shying away. This is a very honest prayer. I think many of us pray prayers. We just bring our, our list, our grocery list to God, and we're like, hey, do this, do this, do this. And we kind of don't really think God will do anything. Um, but we also just pray kind of nice prayers and they feel fake to us. And that's what keeps us from having this robust relationship to God. We feel like we can't bring our full selves to him and we're not even sure if he's around. But I want us to notice that the, the psalmist is bringing his questions and his problems to God. Where are you? He's crying out. He's calling out to God. Why do you stand far away? It's an extremely honest prayer that invites us to be honest with God, not only with our list of things that we want, but to even ask the question, are you here? To bring that to God. Now, the second thing I wanted to notice is that the psalmist spends, you know, the first two thirds of the psalm really asking those questions. It looks like you're not here and the wicked people are succeeding in the world. Why does life tip in their direction? But listen to what he says at the end of the psalm, starting in verse 14. But you yourself, God, you've seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. So he's raising himself up out of his moment in time where he can't see how God is acting in his, just in this exact moment. And he's raising himself out to, to look at the faithfulness and character of God, which has been displayed throughout history. 
And the psalmist would be looking at the history of Israel, all thinking of the history of Israel, all the different ways that God has shown himself to be faithful and will take the matters into his own hands. And for us, we get the privilege of not only doing that, but looking at Jesus. That in God, Jesus comes at a specific point in history to deal with the oppressor and and to make a, a, a way for the oppressed, to break the arm that's over them. And so we look at Jesus, that God did come in history, and we remind ourselves of a bigger story that we're a part of and not just our moment. He continues in verse 17, and listen to the different tenses that he uses in this passage. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You have in the past. You will strengthen their hearts. You will do it in the future. You will listen carefully. Doing justice for the fatherless in the present tense and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify themselves or terrify them no more. The psalmist is reminding himself and all of us that God is present with us in history, in the past, in the future, but also in the present, even when we can't see him. And he's doing this in order to, to encourage us to learn to see God in the present moment, even if it feels like he's hidden that we actually can remind ourselves or or learn to remember him and see that he is here through his faithful acts in history and learn to recognize his presence with us in the moment. While it might seem like God is hidden to us, as the psalmist cries out for the first two-thirds of this psalm, he believes that he's present. It's faith based on the character of God and his acts throughout history. And for us as well, we have the promises of Jesus to lean on, Where Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or I come to make my home with you. Or I put my spirit to live within you. Or at the end of Matthew, as he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the great promises of Jesus that we can lean on. When we can't see how he's acting within the moment, we take a wider angle view and recognize that God's presence is with us. And I can't emphasize this enough. It's a choice. It's not always a feeling or we can't always see clearly what God is doing in the present moment, but learning to recognize the presence of God is a choice. It's a muscle that we need to learn how to flex through prayer. And when we do that, it fundamentally changes our prayer life. Many of us believe in God, but we believe that he's, or experiences that he's hidden or he's very distant. But when we take time to recognize that God is actually here in this present moment, It actually changes our posture and our experience of prayer. It reminds us that we are in a holy space. It reminds us of the character of God as the psalmist does. It gives us an opportunity to be in communion with God, to align ourselves with him and to look at our present circumstances of of people being oppressed and the evil getting away with it and to come alongside of God and say, I know you see this too. And it also allows us to experience the presence of God the king of the universe, as we studied in Genesis 1, the one who created all things with the word, with just his word, that we are in coming into his presence. Or the Jesus that walked this earth, showing the great power of God to heal, but also walked the path of downward mobility, knows what it's like to suffer and even to die. We're in the presence of this Jesus when we pray. And he is continuing to create, or he has created the world, and now he's recreating through his son. And we walk, and when we we take the time, sorry, to recognize that that God is with us, it changes our perspective, that we come into the presence of God when we pray. So that's the first thing we need to do, is, is just to take time to remember, remind ourselves that we are in the presence of God when we pray. We're in the presence of our king. 
And I do think that that fundamentally shifts, I know it does for me, my prayer, when I remember that I'm not just riding my bike and praying, or I'm not just taking some time after I've read scripture, but I'm actually in the presence of God. But that brings us to the next question about prayer. If we're in the presence of God, what does prayer actually do? If God is here, what's the role of our prayers? And um, I think there's two uh, different answers that are on different ends of the spectrum that, that we often talk about as Christians. The first is that you might hear prayer changes nothing. So we would say God is sovereign, which we also believe, and we take that to mean that no matter what, God's will will happen. Numbers 23 says it this way, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. So God's mind is made up, his will is going to happen. And you can kind of look at it like this. God's will is like a closed book. And our prayers are trying to, I don't want to say guess, but to, to align ourselves with that book. And so we pray according to scripture and we pray according to God's character. And we, we are trying to, to find out through a process of um, having our prayers answered and having our prayers denied what the will of God is for this moment. And for some people, this is a really helpful perspective, but for others of us, it doesn't actually give us a vision for prayer, which is what we're talking about in this sermon. Because if you feel, you can feel like if prayer changes nothing, why am I even praying? It's, is it even going to matter if I pray or not? So why should I pray other than that it's just commanded? And I, I do want to say like God's commands should be enough, um, but they're often not for us to get over the hump of actually having a robust prayer life. So this is a problem for us. And, and there's a second problem, which is that um, it brings up a host of questions for us. If we pray, as I did for my, my friend's child who was in the hospital, uh, and I prayed that God would miraculously heal this child, and I spent time fasting and praying with many other people, and then the child passed away anyways, we start to ask questions like, what does that say about God? If that's his will, that that's going to happen. And we really wrestle through that. And all of us have those experiences of, of unanswered prayer. And uh, for many of us that take this perspective or, or have only heard this perspective that ch prayer changes nothing, it makes us question the character of God. So that's one end of the spectrum. The second end of the spectrum is the exact opposite, which is prayer changes everything. In James 4, it says you do not have because you do not ask. So we think God won't move without prayer. If anything is going to happen in this world, we have to be praying. Um, and we see in scripture great acts of God that happen uh, that are preceded by great movements of prayer, for example, in the book of Acts. So we have this perspective, we have to pray in order for God to work in the world. But this can also cause problems for us. Again, what happens if we pray and nothing happens? We might ask ourselves, like, am I praying wrong? Am I not praying enough? What am I doing that's not causing God to work in the world? Maybe there's something wrong with me. Or we might say the opposite. I prayed hard. I prayed long like I did for my friend's child. I fasted and I prayed. I was earnest in my prayer and yet God didn't do anything. Is he powerless? Is there anyone on the other end of the line? It also places a great amount of pressure on us as people if really God's action in the world uh, is, is all hinged on our prayer life. So these are, but these are two pretty common perspectives on prayer on either end of the spectrum. So which one of it, which one is, is correct? Well, I think both of these have something to commend to them, but they both also share a fundamental problem. I think they're trying to, these, these ways of thinking about prayer are trying to figure out God or describe God and how he works in the world, like we might dissect a frog in order to understand how he jumps. 
They're using the rules of cause and effect, which govern so much of our world and applying it onto the God that is outside of our world or beyond our world. So this might be a hard to concept to understand. So let me give you an example. As I said, we just took some time off and uh, this week my wife and I are celebrating our 15 year wedding anniversary. But we, we went away for a couple days uh, during our vacation to Whistler and it was a great time just to relax and eat some good food and chat. Um, so we're very thankful for that for 15 years. And in the beginning of our marriage, uh, we're kind of those people who have had a really rocky start to the marriage and it's got progressively better over time. And in the beginning of marriage, we missed each other a lot. And one of the reasons we missed each other is because we have very different love languages. If you're familiar with that, uh, that idea, it's that we express, we give, and uh, we, we receive love in, in certain lanes. Um, and for me, I express and give love through quality time and through acts of service and physical touch. Those are the three big ones for me. For my wife, words of affirmation and gifts are probably her strongest. And every human being, my wife would say, has all of them. But those are the primary lanes that speak to her. So early on in our marriage, we missed each other because we were trying to, to send and give love uh, in our ways of expressing it. And, and we missed each other and didn't get the message across, I guess you could say. So what we had to do is we rewire our brains. What we're doing wasn't wrong. We were just thinking about... Uh, we, were, we were loving more ourselves than the other person. And so for me, the way that I thought about this is like the inputs of my marriage are not getting the results that I've hoped for. So I need to change the inputs. And uh, instead of just, you know, doing acts of service for my life, I need to mix it up and also give her some gifts, which was hard for me. You know, I'm cheap. So I'm like, hey, can I just do something for you? It's a lot cheaper if I do that. That's free. Um, so I started to mix in uh, words of affirmation and giving gifts. But here's the problem. It, it worked. Uh, it was, it, it um, showed love to my wife quite a lot. But here's the issue. I thought that if I do the things that my wife needs, I change the inputs for love, then she'll just be happy. As long as I mix those in enough, she'll be happy. Cause and effect. I do words of affirmation and gifts. My wife will be happy. And I think this is in general the way that many men's brains work, not to overgeneralize, but if you listen to comedians and they talk about relationships, it's often the same dynamic, this way of thinking, uh, a cause and effect as it, it pertains to their significant other. But sometimes here's what I found, especially maybe at the midpoint of our marriage, I would buy my wife flowers. I got good at it. I would, I would start giving her gifts and every time I went away, I would buy her something or try to do give her words of affirmation. And she'd say, oh, thanks, that's really nice but it really wouldn't move the dial on her happiness. The outcome wouldn't be the desired outcome that I wanted. And I would get confused because, and sometimes I'd even get mad because I think I'm doing the things that you told me to, the, doing the things that are your love language, but I'm not getting the results that I want. And it's only in the past few years that my wife has helped me to understand what's going on. And the problem is that my wife is not a robot. She doesn't work on the uh, principles of inputs and outcomes. And our marriage is not a system. That's not the best analogy for our marriage. The best tool to understand our marriage is not cause and effect because it's a relational endeavor. Our marriage is a relational thing. And, it, and, and my wife would say it functions within a whole other bunch of webs of relationships and things that are going on in her mind and in the world. So does that mean I should stop getting gifts? And trying to say nice things to my wife? Absolutely not. I need to keep doing those things. But the, the way I was looking at it 
with cause and effect was the wrong way of looking at my marriage. It was an unwise way. It's not the right tool for the job. Now, maybe your relationships are similar, but my point here is that we can often do the same thing with prayer and with God. We view prayer as a cause and effect system, which is the wrong perception when it comes to God, because God is not a system. He is not an idea. He is not a logical uh, theology. He is a person. And so we need to apply relational principles more than any of these other things. Our minds may go to cause and effects relationships, and that's okay. But more than anything, God is a relation. He, he wants a relationship with us. He is a person. And so we need to apply relational principles before logical principles. Here's how Eugene Peterson speaks of this idea as it pertains to prayer. He says, in prayer, I am not controlled by the action. That is a Hindu concept of prayer in which I slump passively into the impersonal and faded will of God and goddesses. So he's saying the idea that God's will is just there and it doesn't matter what we pray is not the correct one. That's, a, that's more of a system or a religious way of thinking about it. He also says, I don't control the action. It's not all up to me. That's a pagan concept of prayer, putting the gods to work by my incantations and rituals. So neither of these perspectives are right. Like I said, there are more systematic ways of thinking about the world using cause and effect. So how should we think about it according to Peterson? He says, I enter into the action by another, begun by another, sorry, my creating and saving Lord, and find myself participating in the results of the action. I neither do it nor have it done to me. I will to participate in what is willed. It's a relational endeavor. This is the vision of prayer in Psalm 10, and I think the vision that we need if we want to have a robust prayer life. In prayer, we're entering into a much bigger story. It's God's story. It's one that he started and we are entering into. That's what it says in Psalm 10 in verse 14. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person, until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. That God, this is ultimately God's story and he's the only one powerful enough to break wickedness in a way that it can't actually be found anymore. The Lord is king forever and ever. See, we're not called to start anything in prayer. Rather, we're invited into the action, invited to join the story that's been unfolding since the beginning of time and into a relationship that God has had with the world since Genesis 1. But at the same time, we're not just passive. We're invited to participate in God's story in the world. If you remember back to our last series in Genesis 1, it says very clearly that we are the images of God in the world, that we are his icons or his statues or his idols, that people will know who God is by our representation of him. And so our work is to do the work of God, to bring heaven to earth. And our prayer life then is not just for ourselves, but it's for the blessing and the shalom of the whole world. We're joining into this story and accepting our, our position as representatives of God in the story. And so we cry out on behalf of the world and beg God to act. As the psalmist does in verse 12, rise up, Lord God, lift up your hand, do not forget the oppressed. And every time we beg God to act in the world, to see more of his face shone into the world, we also have to look back at ourselves as his image bearers, that we partner with him in the world. Whereas Eugene Peterson says, we participate with God in the world. 
Or if you remember back to our series in Genesis 1, Tim Mackey, one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, says that every time we ask God, why didn't you or why don't you, because we're God's image, we have to reflect that question to ourselves and say, why don't we? Why don't I? So we're praying ourselves into the action that's happening, into becoming like Yahweh. Listen to what one commentator says about Psalm 9 and 10 and, and how it should uh, in, in encourage us to get involved. Psalm, uh, he says, Psalm 9 and 10 are especially concerned that those in positions of authority use their power and influence to seek justice and equity, defending in particular those individuals in society who have no access to power and representation, the widows, orphans, needy, weak, and so on. Rather than use power to ensure self-benefit and comfort, they are to support the cause of the poor and needy, abandoning the example of the arrogant wicked in Psalm 10 and following instead the model of Yahweh, who hears the desires of the afflicted, defends the fatherless and the oppressed. You may think after hearing this, like, oh, I'm not in power. So yeah, we should call out to God for, you know, prime ministers and CEOs uh, and presidents to uh, not oppress people. And I do think that's true. But we have to remember at the same time that we're all divine images in the language of the Bible. All of us have agency. So as much as we are to pray that there, the oppressors out there need to stop, we're also to called to ask ourselves, is my life tilted more towards myself, more towards the perspective of the arrogant, more towards comfort and self-benefit? Or is it tilted towards the other, that using whatever resources I have on behalf of the needy and the weak in the world? It's really asking us to ask the question, am I more like the arrogant man or am I more like Yahweh? And in these moments where we come and ask this question, we'll often come face to face with how we're complicit in the problems of the world and how far we fall short as image bearers of God. And this is an invitation for us in prayer when we feel these things to look to Jesus, the true image of God who came for all of us who are arrogant for all of us who are self-centered and for all of us who deny God, whether with our mouth and with our minds or just with our lives. And verse 14 says, the psalmist is crying out, break the arm of the wicked, evil person, until you can't look for his wickedness, but it or until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. And this is, we may, we may recoil at this kind of language, but this is what Jesus has done for us. That he's broken the arm of sin and death over us. The power that sin has, as we saw in the Gospel of Mark, that he's released us from the captivity to sin so that we can now come into the presence of God and receive his grace. It says in this passage that God receives the humble. And that's what we can be. We, we can be made new in God's image as we come humbly when we come face to face with how we are also like this arrogant man. And we can be remade in God's image and rejoin him in his work in the world. So this is the vision of prayer in this psalm, that we are to come into the presence of God when every time we come to the pray of the living God, that sometimes even though he seems hidden from us in the moment to moment, that we are to invite ourselves into a larger story and remember that we're coming into the presence of the God of the universe. We let go of our perceptions of cause and effect, which govern so much of our world and have brought us so many wonderful uh, inventions and, and technology that we can use, but they're the wrong principles to apply to our relationship with God. And instead we pray, we learn to pray in partnership with him, that his story has been begun by him and we are invited into it as his image bearers. And he actually wants to work with us in the world. 
and he wants to, to create us into more and more the image of Jesus, that we might be the agents of shalom and the agents of justice in his world. How might it change your prayer life if this is your vision of prayer? Let's close together in prayer. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your invitation to come to you, to bring our whole selves, our anger, our frustration, and um, the places where we wonder if you're, you're actually there. So I pray that you would, you would teach us to do that, to come into your presence, fully ourselves, and to, to come and notice that you are fully here with us as well. And as we do so, I, I pray that you would teach us how to come into our prayers and participate relationally with you. Maybe have a big picture of what your story is, who you're calling us to be and what you want us to do in, in the world. And may we take a hard look, may we cry out for, for the, um, the needy and the weak and the poor in our world, asking you to act. But we, we also be very quick to look at our own lives and, and see, would you point out in your grace the areas where we fall well short? Would you correct us? Would you make us humble? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you change us to become more and more people? who reflect Jesus into the world. So we ask that you would move us from duty to delight in our relationship with you this week. Pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.